caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, I learned firsthand how challenging it can be to care for someone with dementia. I'm now a certified caregiving consultant, educator, and I lead a support group in my local community. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. My co-host and husband, Mike, is unable to join us today, but he will be back with me as soon as possible. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support, and maybe even a laugh or two, which we all know is the best medicine. As the number of cases of Alzheimer's and the many other forms of dementia continue to grow every day, the need for people to participate in clinical trials increases as well. And that brings me to today's guest. Michelle Papka is the director and founder of the Cognitive Research Center, New Jersey. She began her career at the University of Rochester Medical Center as the neuropsychologist of an NIA-funded Alzheimer's Disease Center. She co-directed the Cognitive and Memory Disorders Program at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. From there, Dr. Papka formed her private practice, maintaining an affiliation with the Atlantic Neuroscience Institute and strives daily to contribute to the diagnosis, treatment, and cure of age-related cognitive decline in her community and at large. Thank you so much. Recognizing what's going on in the caregiving community now, I have to ask you what you think about this new drug. I think it's very exciting uh, that we do have a new drug uh, approved for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And I think that the research in Alzheimer's disease Um, has really been flourishing over the past decade. And so it really is um, reinforcing to see that um, we're able to bring a drug to market. And hopefully this will be the first of a number of newer drugs uh, to come to market. Of course, there are a lot of details um, surrounding the FDA approval of aducanumab, including you know, who would have, who will have access to the drug? How will they access it? Who is going to pay for it? So there still are um, a lot of unanswered questions uh, about it, but I think that the general um, movement in a positive direction for Alzheimer's research is a very positive one. Well, we definitely want as many people as possible working on something um, that will, you know, treat it and hopefully eventually cure it. Um, In order for that to happen, there needs to be um, clinical trials, and we definitely want to talk to you about that. You know, as somebody who leads a caregiver support group, uh, you know, I'm familiar with people who have participated in them and how important they are. But, you know, you as the expert in this can, you know, share with our listeners not only how important it is, but how they go about, you know, volunteering for something like this, what types of trials there, there are, what qualify someone to participate in a trial? There are always um, many different types of trials uh, for Alzheimer's disease that are going on at any given time. And some of you may know that 
the biggest obstacle to finding a cure for Alzheimer's disease is uh, participants in clinical trials. So if we are to have a cure or to have newer or better treatments, we need people to uh, participate. So it's not uh, funding or money or other obstacles. It really is uh, people willing to be in trials. So, so that's the first thing in order to move the, the field forward. Um, whether or not somebody is eligible to participate in a clinical trial really comes down to that specific clinical trial. So each trial will have its own set of criteria um, that need to be met. So they will, there will be inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. And depending on the trial, they may be looking for people with certain types of symptoms, certain types of cognitive symptoms or behavioral symptoms that are of a specific severity. Uh, they may include or exclude people who have different um, other medical diagnoses or taking other medications. So it really just depends on the trial. The way to get access to clinical trials um, is, well, well, one place is clinicaltrials.gov. Um, that is a website that is maintained by the government that lists all the different clinical trials that are being done in the country. Um, so this is not a um, advertising or PR, they're, they're lists that are maintained. So clinicaltrials.gov, which is a menu-driven uh, website, is one very good resource for locating and um, learning about clinical trials. Uh, the Alzheimer's Association uh, has uh, different resources for learning about clinical trials. They have, um, I think theirs is called Trial Match, um, where you can put in your information and it might match you to different trials. Um, the Alzheimer's Foundation probably has information about um, clinical trials. So there are lots of different uh, places to go uh, to find out about uh, local uh, clinical trials. The other thing to keep in mind is even if you, you don't have a site that's very close to where you live, oftentimes the site will be able to help provide transportation um, to the site depending on uh, um, where you do live and um, what the trial is and who the sponsor is. So for the most part, we are trying to make uh, clinical trials as accessible as possible. So some other things that I would say about clinical trials is that people in clinical trials tend to do better than people not in clinical trials, including people who get a placebo. Some people may know that a placebo is, you know, it looks, smells, feels like the medication, but it actually doesn't have the active ingredient. And most if not all uh, clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease are double blind placebo controlled, which means that we don't know, the investigators don't know, and the patient doesn't know whether they're on drug or placebo. We will find out at some point, but not during the blinded part of the trial. Um, and so sometimes, you know, we have people who come in and say, you know, I don't want to take a chance of getting a placebo. And what I usually say back to that is for one, many trials, not all of them, but many trials still allow people to be on whatever the standard of care medication is. 
Um, so they're not necessarily giving up something to be in the trial. They could depend, you know, some trials would exclude medications like Aricept, but most of them don't. Um, but the other thing is we know that people do better when they're in a clinical trial. And it's probably because when someone is in a clinical trial, they are being monitored very, very, very carefully. Um, they tend to be in, in pretty good health um, because their health is being monitored very carefully. They have access to a multidisciplinary team of specialists. Their um, study partner and all these trials require a study partner um, has access to a multidisciplinary team of professionals and they're getting the kind of care and monitoring that they probably are not getting as part of standard clinical care. So and I imagine that family support is really important. Family support is extremely important. We are never enrolling just the patient in a clinical trial. So everybody to enroll, I've never done a clinical trial for MCI or Alzheimer's disease that did not require a study partner. And the study partner could be uh, a family member, uh, you know, a spouse, an adult child, a close friend. Uh, the criteria for being a study partner uh, may change depending on the trial, but the general gist of it is that it has to be somebody who is also committed to the trial, who can provide information about the patient, who can help ensure that the um, study medication is being taken appropriately, uh, that will help provide uh, feedback about any symptoms um, they may be noticing, and who can tell us about um, the person's lifestyle, um, their daily functioning. And so for the, for the study partner, it also ends up being a very good support mechanism because they're often being asked questions privately. Um, so we may be seeing the patient or the subject in one room and the study partner in another room and they're uh -huh. each undergoing you know, different types of interviews. And even those study partner interviews, I think can be very therapeutic for or a family member or caregiver? Absolutely, as a care, caregiver support group leader, I know firsthand how, you know, having somebody who can listen and understand yeah. is, is, is a big help to them. Yes, absolutely. It also gives us an opportunity to maybe provide information about resources that may be helpful. So if in the course of an interview, we may be doing an interview to collect data about something, but then once we learn about the presence of certain symptoms or problems that may be occurring at home with regards to caregiving, we may be able to provide local resources, you know, references so that that family may consider utilizing things and, and knowing about um, services and resources that they may not have thought of on their own. Family caregivers often become frustrated um, when dealing with doctors who don't quite understand and mm -hmm. when you go into the doctor's office and the person with dementia says one thing and the caregiver says another, sometimes the caregiver is dismissed. And mm -hmm. we know that somebody with dementia can appear much better in a clinical setting than they do at home. Oh yeah. Uh, so so that, that's another way that, you know, Communicating with somebody in the trial can be very helpful to the caregiver. 
Yes, I do think the caregiver feels heard, validated, supported. Uh, so I think that those are important experiences. And I also think that sometimes it helps them meet other caregivers, uh, depending on the situation at the site. Um, and so again, access to resources that they may not have known about or had access to before. Absolutely. When I was in this caregiving world day to day, I had no idea what kind of resources were available. Of course, that was in 2002 to 2009, so there's more support available now. But I clearly recall, you know, going into doctor's offices with my father-in-law with real concerns, and he would look at them and say, she's crazy, she worries too much, I'm okay. <laughs> Sometimes, depending on the doctor, they, you know, they would understand and sometimes they, they didn't. So that's, that's part of what I try to teach people when I reach out. Now, almost all, if not all, and correct me if I'm wrong, this research is for Alzheimer's disease. What about Lewy body disease? What about frontal lobal? What about those? So there are also clinical trials for dementia with Lewy bodies and frontotemporal dementia. Those can also be found on clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, also, there is a, um, a Lewy body disease association and there is a, another uh, organization association for um, people who have frontal temporal lobe dementia. So many of the compounds that are being tried for Alzheimer's disease are also being tried in uh, populations of people with other types of dementia. Of course, there are fewer of those trials, but they do exist. Um, and they're always looking for potential participants. As somebody who's not a brain specialist, having this opportunity to talk to somebody who, who really understands this can you explain a little bit to our listeners about the difference in the brain in somebody with Alzheimer's as opposed to Lewy body? Different types of dementia, and let me just define that dementia means global cognitive impairment. So when somebody has memory loss and loss of one other area of cognitive functioning, and that loss is significant enough to interfere with daily functioning and represents a decline from that person's baseline that uh, qualifies as having dementia. So you can think of dementia as a spectrum of symptoms, but there are different things that can cause dementia. Alzheimer's disease happens to be the most common cause of dementia in people over the age of 65. Alzheimer's disease is actually defined by having a buildup of amyloid plaque and neurofibrillary tangles that develop in the brain. And interestingly, while we've always thought of the diagnosis of dementia based on, of Alzheimer's disease based on clinical symptoms, and only by autopsy could we confirm that it was Alzheimer's disease because only in an autopsy could we actually see those amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, that's really changed. The research field has completely changed that. So we now have ways of seeing amyloid plaque and neurofibrillary tangles in a living person. We have specialized brain imaging, which is another reason 
to be in a clinical trial because many, not all, but many clinical trials offer potential um, access to getting those scans. Um, amyloid PET scans are FDA approved, but insurance doesn't cover them. So most people aren't not getting them because they're cost prohibitive. Uh, tau PET scans um, are only being done in research. Um, there are other ways of seeing byproducts of these plaques and tangles um, in cerebrospinal fluid. And there are many different attempts at a blood marker for Alzheimer's disease. And we're really very, very close. So it could be sometime, you know, in the not too distant future that you can go get a blood test to see if there are these byproducts of these amyloid plaques and tangles in the bloodstream. And we all know the sooner we have a diagnosis, the better off. Yes, so that's the wonderful. sooner the better. So by definition, really, Alzheimer's disease is based on the neuropathological substrates, these plaques and tangles. In Lewy body disease, we see something different. We see something called Lewy bodies and their name comes from their founder. So the person who first discovered the Lewy body, whose name was Frederick Lewy. So it was named after him. And we see Lewy bodies in people who have Parkinson's disease. So it's just a different type of a pathology. In Parkinson's disease, those Lewy bodies take over an area of the brain called the substantia nigra. And that's why that area of the brain is necessary for movement, which is why in Parkinson's disease, you have movement disorder because that area of the brain is taken over with these Lewy bodies. But in Lewy body dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies, those Lewy bodies are in the substantia nigra, but they're also in the cortex of the brain. And you can also have some plaques and tangles. That's dementia with Lewy bodies. In frontal temporal dementia, you will see other pathologies. You may see pick bodies or other pathologies. So I always say the brain is like real estate. It's location, location, location. It doesn't matter what it is. It matters where it is. So you can have a person, one person with Alzheimer's, one person with dementia with Lewy bodies, and another person with frontal temporal dementia, and they really may have similar symptoms. And they can be very hard to tell apart clinically um, because it matters where in the brain these neuropathological substrates are. That will determine the symptoms. Thank you so much for clarifying that. You know, I've got you here and I'm going to take full advantage of it. What would you, sitting here talking to me today, want our listeners to learn? and hear from you? Well, I think that one of the more important take-home messages is it's important that if you are noticing symptoms or if you're someone who's potentially high risk or you're somebody aged, I even say 50 and older, that monitoring and attending to brain health is, um, an impor is important and should be part of everybody's yearly regimen. So just like we may go get our eyes or ears checked, um, we want to weigh into how we are doing cognitively and otherwise, because you've already mentioned that the sooner we, we can diagnose someone 
the better chance we have at maybe doing something to change that trajectory. And one of the things we know from a lot of more recent research is that there are different um, lifestyle factors that really can help us uh, brain age better, whether we have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or not. And so getting information and being empowered with information about ourselves, as well as information about um, research findings and resources and potential interventions is the best way uh, to keep ourselves aging as healthfully as possible. And unfortunately, I think that the stigma and the fear that surround um, memory loss or a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or another dementia, as well as a lack of information and not just in the lay community, including, you know, unfortunately sometimes in the medical community of not, you know, getting referrals or, uh, you know, maybe not having the luxury of spending so much time with each patient to really realize what's going on or how it's affecting the family uh, really can prevent people from getting the kind of um, attention and information that they need to make informed decisions about themselves and their, their loved ones. Well, thank you so much for putting that. I am definitely at the age where at least once a year, my doctor gives me the mini cognitive test and every time, every time I draw that clock and remember those words, you know, that's a victory. But I'm also educating my children on what to look mm -hmm. for and what to expect if this should happen to me. Even going so far as, you know, talking to my husband about what should happen if I don't recognize him one day, those kind of mm -hmm. things. But it's, it's scary. It's scary to think that it's coming. And your biggest chance of getting one of these cognitive diseases is age. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So it's a risk. We're all at risk just by aging. Right. And, um, you know, I think that we really need to step away from this idea of this being a, a mental health issue. It's a medical diagnosis and disease, just like anything else. So you wouldn't, hopefully you wouldn't ignore if you had heart disease or diabetes or, or something else, nor should we ignore if there's something going on in the organ of the brain that we may be able to address in, in some way. Well, Dr. Pavka, on that note, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule and also to thank you for the work that you do to support, you know, people with cognitive impairment and their families and, you know, working within the community to help us find a way to address this. Again, thank you so much for being part of Roger That. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the work that you do, really. You're very welcome. You know, I, I made some notes when we were talking. One thing that I really want people to understand is what, when you said people in clinical trials seem to do better even if they don't get the drug. It's absolutely, uh, you know, a positive for enrolling in that. And also for sharing those links on where to find clinical trials. We'll post them on our show website. Again, thank you for being with us. This is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes or the Roger That Facebook page, and post a review. 
and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. If you would like your identity to remain private, you can direct message your question on Facebook and we will answer. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show.